the book of John. If you want to go ahead and turn there, John chapter 8. And I was just telling Pastor Reisinger here before he started, um, every time I get a chance to, to preach like this, I always appreciate it. Um, and I, at work, you know, I work um, building sheds, and a lot of the work is kind of monotonous. I do the, kind of the same things over and over again. So once you figure out how to do it, um, you have a lot of thinking time. So I usually think over what I'm going to say, but I don't often have a lot of time to organize it. <laughs> so I feel like I kind of have a jumble of thoughts here. So hopefully it'll come across to you as clearly as it did in my mind at 6 o'clock this morning on two cups of coffee. So we're going to be looking at a really familiar story here. Um, just hope to draw a few points from it out of John chapter 8. Uh, before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, I'd like to say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I just pray that, um, Lord, you just open up your word to us right now and that will just be clear. Lord, you say that your word is beneficial to us to instruct us, Lord, to guide us. And um, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would illumine um, the word now. And Lord, just help me to um, be, just be clear and, and delivering it, Lord. Just keep me from saying something that you wouldn't have me to say. And uh, Lord, just help me to say the things that you would have me to say. And um, I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so John chapter 8. Starting off here, we'll just go ahead and read through the story. Very familiar story here in John chapter 8. We're looking at verses 1 through 11. Let's go ahead and read that. So John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It says, And Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto her, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Jesus, now, sorry, verse 5, Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So I'd like to just draw um, out several points that struck me just as I was thinking through this story. Um, and... The first point is that I'd like to bring our attention to is found in verse 7, and that is that we are all guilty. And this is kind of the first half of, of kind of one complete thought here, but first just to draw the fact that, that we are all guilty. And Jesus draws the accuser's attention to that fact in verse 7. Again, we're all familiar with the story, but when he continued asking, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is out sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. So we're all guilty. 
And um, as Christians, this is, this is kind of an obvious point. Um, before salvation, we're all aware of the fact that we are guilty. That's why we need to be saved, right? We need to be saved from something that was our, our sin guilt. So I think we all recognize the fact that we are guilty, that we are sinners. But again, this, this, is, this is a really important fact. Just remember leading into some other observations that are going to make. Um, so even though we don't have to, to compete, compete or, or perform for forgiveness from God, God has already freely given that to us, um, we still have to recognize that Sin is a terrible thing, and we are all guilty of sin. And that sin, even though, again, we are, we are forgiven from the penalty of sin, we are saved from that eternal death, that eternal separation from God and hell. We're saved from that. We accept what Jesus has done for us. Still, sin still has the ability to, to separate us from the type of relationship and blessing that God wants to give us. So, just to give, give a little bit of an example of that, um, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. And when they sinned, um, think of the two things that kind of resulted from that. I think it's kind of a picture of what can happen. Um, first, they were, they were kicked out of the garden. And even though um, they still lived in a, in a beautiful world that God had created, the world we live in today, still wasn't the same as the garden. So their sin had consequences. They got kicked out of the garden. Um, and also, it, it changed their relationship with God. Um, before that, they had had a completely unhindered relationship with God in a way that none of us have really experienced. They're able to walk with him in a way that we won't be able to experience until heaven. Um, and they were kind of separated from that. Um, and it was their sin that did that. So even though I think they got back, the relationship was restored and God pursued that and, and restored that, still there were some lasting consequences from sin. So sin, sin is still a, a powerful force, and we have to recognize that we are all guilty of sin. Um, not only in the sense of we needed salvation, but just in our everyday lives, sin has the capability of, of still separating us from God and everything he wants to do in our lives. And it's interesting here, something that struck me about this story, kind of a little bit of a side note on this point, um, the religious leaders here missed out on the best part of the recognition of sin, and that is that there is forgiveness of it. So Jesus here points out their sin, but what do they do? Their conscience, they, their conscience spoke to them, point out, yeah, you're a sinner. What do they do? They left, which is really interesting because, yeah, Jesus was the one that pointed out their sin to, to them, but he was also the one that had the ability to, to forgive them, which he does to the lady here taking adultery shortly after this. So right in front of them was the means that could have forgiven them as well as the lady taking an adultery. What did they do? They got guilty and they left. They left the one that could have given them forgiveness. Um, and Jesus doubtless would have given them that forgiveness, but they just walked away. And uh, I don't know, I, I never really thought of that before. And it's kind of a little bit of a side note, but Jesus doesn't want to leave us in the, that guilty state of sin. He wants to offer us that forgiveness. And uh, that will kind of lead into another point. We'll see a little bit later. But So we are all guilty, and it's important to realize that, that not only are we guilty in, in the big sense of needing salvation, but just in our daily lives, we still 
sin against God and we're still guilty of that in our own lives on a personal level. So because of that, we're all guilty and thus, point number two, we have no right to judge others. And uh, I kind of hated to use that word judge um, just because it's, that's kind of a popular word these days and, um, you know, don't judge me, don't judge others. Um, I heard a little talk yesterday about not judging other people and it's used these days in, in social justice type of things, you know, not to, not to judge other people and, you know, hey man, don't judge me because, you know, it says in the Bible, judge not and be not judged. Never it's like to be thrown around here. But I like to look at that phrase, I think, in, in the context of what Jesus meant. So it seems like here Jesus had the dual purpose of confronting them with that statement, he that is out sin among you, let him first cast the stone at her. Jesus had the dual purpose of confronting them with their own sin and also showing that this very sin disqualified them from taking actions against other sinners. And I'd like to turn over to Matthew chapter 5 really quick and look at that popular verse, set of verses. They are in context. Um, and I had verses 1 through 5 written down, and that's not right. Chapter 7, thank you. There we go, thank you. And it is verses 1 through 5. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. All right, so let's go ahead and read these verses. So here's that verse. Again, you hear this a lot, at least I do. Judge not, that you be not judged. Verse 1, verse 2. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but consider not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. So, looking at this verse in context, the, the point that Jesus is trying to make isn't that you shouldn't judge. You should just live a, a, completely, a life that is completely free, free from any sort of judgment. Because think about it. We, we judge things every day. You can't, you can't live life without judging things. I mean, that would be literally not thinking at all. I mean, you weigh, you weigh situations in life. It's just what you do. That, that's what your brain's for. And you're supposed, I mean, it's just wisdom. You judge situations. That's just what you do. So obviously Jesus isn't saying don't judge anything. The point here he's making is, again, that if you judge, you need to make sure that you're qualified, one, that you're qualified to do so, and two, that you have the right motive for doing it. Um, and because what does he say here? He says in verse um, three, why behold this? Thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but consider it's not the beam that is in thine own eye. So Jesus is saying, look, you need to make sure that, that you are qualified to judge. And again, this goes along with the first point, recognizing that you too are a sinner. 
And I think this is the point that Jesus was trying to make to those religious leaders. Look, are you guys really qualified to judge this lady? Do you recognize that you too need to be judged? So Jesus is saying, look, before you judge this lady, you need to make sure that you're qualified to cast the judgment upon this lady. So what is he saying here in, in Matthew chapter 7? You need to make sure you're qualified. And he's saying, what does he say? He says you need to get qualified. He says, find that, find that beam that's in your eye, take it out, and then what's he say in verse 5? Then shalt thou clearly see to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. So in fact, Jesus actually is saying here, actually, you do need to judge. But you just need to make sure you're judging clearly. So you need to take care of whatever's clearing, whatever's clearing your judgment, whatever sin problem you have, whatever you know, problems you have in your own life, and make sure that you're looking at the situation clearly, because then you can truly help this person. He's not saying never judge. He's saying you make sure you judge correctly with the right motive, the motive of helping, helping the person. <laughs> and I think as Christians, um, a, lot of, a lot of the reason why you know, we, give, we give the idea of you, know, you just need to not judge, you need to not judge, is because that's, a lot of times that's where we stop as human beings. We stop at the judgment part. And we're quick, to, we're quick to criticize, we're quick to see the problems of others, which they might be real problems, you know, and that person might need help. But we stop there, and we never help the person. I think a lot of times, when, when we're the one that maybe sees the problem, maybe, maybe that's God putting that situation, this, this situation this other person in, bringing it to our attention so we can help the person out. And we just need to make sure that, that we're in the right position to do so, that we're right before God, that we're humble, that we recognize, you know what, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I struggle too. But look, here's, here's somebody who's struggling. I see the situation. Um, I believe with God's help that I'm seeing the situation clearly. Now I can help this person out. I can help them get that. You know what the illustration gives here. I can help them get this thing out of their eye because I'm seeing clearly now. So the point is don't judge. Don't be, don't be a person that, that never condemns anything that anybody ever does. But one, make sure you're doing it with the right focus. And two, make sure you're doing it with the attitude, okay, I, want, I need to help this guy out. I need to help this person out. This person's in trouble. I'm in, a, I'm in a position here. I can help him out. And I think, I think that's what, again, looking, looking at this principle, I think that's what Jesus was trying to help his religious leaders see. But again, they, they totally missed it. And uh, they just got convicted and walked out. And uh, I saw a, a quote by Spurgeon that I thought was good. It says, do not bury a man before he is dead. Hope that so long as a sinner lives, he may yet live unto God. And again, it's so easy to look at people, be quick to kind of see the situation they're in and say, oh, no, that's kind of a hopeless situation. Oh, man, I'm so glad I'm not in that situation and kind of move on with life. Um, but again, maybe God put you in that situation so you can judge the situation, but then you can help the person. And as Christians, we're called to do that. <clears throat> with sinners, helping them with their sin problem, leading them to Jesus, and then with each other as well. That's part of what our purpose as a church body is for. So that's the only purpose for judgment is, is for restoration. And again, this, this must be done through humility, recognizing our own weaknesses and having a proper view of the one who is truly able to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, recover the sight of the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised, which is a description that Jesus gave to himself in Luke 4.18. And um, 
as an example of this, that was really interesting kind of backing up this idea is you think back to when Jesus commissioned Isaiah. And um, what did he do? He appeared to Isaiah. And Isaiah saw the holiness of God and, and just how perfectly awesome in, in the true sense that word God is and holy God is. And what was Isaiah's reaction? He fell down on his face. He recognized how amazing God was. And then what did he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He recognized his own sin. And then what did Jesus do? He purified him of that sin and then said, okay, now you're able to serve me. Who will go for me? And Isaiah, then being ready to serve God, says, here am I. And God commissioned him. So that was really interesting. God, before he commissioned Isaiah, gave him that right focus of, of who God was and then who Isaiah was. Isaiah recognized that. God purified him and then sent him out to help the nation of Israel. Which goes right along with Matthew 7, which we just looked at. So this leads into my third observation here. Going back to John chapter 8 here. And that is that Jesus has every right to condemn, but he seeks to restore. Um, and you see that with the, with the woman here. And in verse 10, when Jesus lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, a question Was this woman guilty? Answers yes. Um, was her sin a big deal? Answers yes. Old Testament law said, said that this woman should be stoned for, the, for adultery. I mean, the sin was a big deal. And Jesus wasn't dismissing that fact. But I think Jesus is always about forgiveness and restoration and not condemnation. Um, and at this point, I wanted to talk a little bit about something. Um, and there seems to be sometimes the idea that, that there's a tension between the idea of God's love and the, and the holiness of God. And, you know, you hear the question, you know, why would a loving God, you know, condemn people and send people to hell? And then the answer is, well, you know, God is, God is also a holy God. And I've, heard, I've even heard people say that, you know, love, love is one of God's attributes, but holiness is actually God's highest attribute. And... I don't know what exactly, how exactly I feel about that, just because that's not really backed up in Scripture. Scripture never says that holiness is God's highest attribute. Um, God, is, God is the fullest sense of every good attribute. He's the fullest sense of love. He's the fullest sense of holiness. So I, I don't think you can even say that one of God's attributes is highest than the other, because he completely is the attribute. So, I mean, infinity isn't higher than infinity, right? God is, God is the infinity of every attribute. So his holiness equals his love because they're both infinite. But some people seem to think that those two things are intention, his holiness and his love, but, but really they're not, especially when you, when you think about it in, in the context of, of us and the forgiveness that we need. And just to illustrate this, I um, wanted to look at 1 Peter. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. And that's where you find um, that the phrase where God says, be ye holy for I am holy. So just wanted to look at that. 
So 1 Peter chapter 1. All right. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to look at verses 13 through 21. All right. So 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. It says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. As obedient children, not fashion yourselves according to the former lust of your ignorance. But as he which called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Verse 16, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And that phrase was often used by God in giving the law. You see that in a lot of the Pentateuch, um, those books where God is giving the law. That is a phrase that is often repeated. And that's why Peter's saying here, as it is written, because that's a phrase God used often. Be holy, for I am holy. Uh, verse 17, for if ye call on the Father, who without respect to persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as the Lamb without blemish, without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. So, God there is demanding, be holy, for I am holy. And looking at that, it can, it can kind of be on the face that it can be daunting. Like, God is setting this ridiculously high bar that he knows none of us are going to be able to, to live up to. And it can seem like God's, God's just kind of like, almost like trying to just like really pound to us the message of you can never be as holy as I am, which is true, but he goes on to, to list out in those verses, look, that's, that's why I sent you Jesus. I have this demand for holiness, and yes, I know you're never going to live up for it, but that's why I sent Jesus, because Jesus is perfectly holy, and Jesus is the substitute. You see, um, it talks about uh, verse 16, both the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Um, verse 20, was manifested in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God and raise him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. So the holiness of, the holiness of God and, and the, the love of God are never in contention. Um, and God, God, it's God's love for us that makes him want that holiness for us. Because again, what, what is separating us from, from God, from a relationship with God, from having that perfect walk with God? It's our sin. It's unholiness. And God wants to seek, God wants to make us holy through salvation, forgiving us of all our sins, and then in, in holy living so we can, we can have that full, unhindered relationship with him. So it, it's, it's his love and his holiness that are working together for our salvation and for our sanctification. He wants to make us wholly like him so we can have the relationship with him. And one day when we get to the heaven, obviously that's, that's going to be the, the, in the fullest sense of that, but we can experience that now through his life living in us. I mean, he, he can enable us to live that holy life so we can have, even now, that relationship with him, the unhindered relationship with him. But again, the devil, you know, the world, the flesh, the devil, they want to seek to destroy that. And they want us to go back to what? To that sin, to that unholiness that, that separates us from God. But through his love, God still pursues us and he chastens us 
And that's the whole idea of where, where chastening comes in. God doesn't chasten us because he hates us. He chastens us because he loves us. Why? To bring us back to holy living. And um, you see that exact formula in Hebrews 12. So turn back just a couple pages there, right there in Hebrews, a couple books back there. Hebrews chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 6 through 11. Say, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? So, I mean, sometimes it can seem like um, the chastening of God is God's just trying to beat us over the head with our unholiness. That's not what God's doing. God's pointing out our unholiness to us because he loves us and he wants to restore us. And he even says that, verse 8. But if you be without, without chastisements, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards, not sons. Furthermore, we had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much more rather be, subject, um, be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yielded the peaceable fruits of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And then it's interesting, it says in verse 12, Wherefore we lift up hands which hang down, and the feeble knees make straight past your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. So again, given the idea of, and hey, once, once you're restored, once God has restored you, you're then able to help others. You're um, able to help others which um, have hands which hang down and have feeble knees. So the whole purpose of God's chastening, chasing your unholiness, is because he loves us, and that's going to bring us back into that fellowship with him. That's going to bring, what's it say in verse 11, the peaceable fruits of righteousness in our life. That's going to bring back that righteous living back into our lives. So that brings me to the last point. So Jesus is, has every right in them, but he seeks to restore his last point. And that was the last point we talked about. And then the last point here tonight is, thus Jesus is quick to forgive, but is also quick to call to righteousness. And turn back to our passage there in John chapter 8 for the last time here. <clears throat> and looking again at verse 11. She said, No man, Lord, when he asked, Who condemned thee? And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. I forgive you. But then he said, Go and sin no more. And there's, there's kind of two points I'd like to take out of this. And first, that Jesus' forgiveness um, isn't, isn't just that, that blank check to live however we want. Jesus' forgiveness, again, is, is for the purpose of bringing us back into that fellowship with him so we can go out and live holy lives, so we can go out and do the things he wants us to do. He didn't say to the lady, you know, I forgive you. Now just go ahead and go back to, you know, whatever you want to do. He said, go, I forgive you, now go and sin no more. So that's not, and again, Paul in Romans chapter um, 6, I believe, lays this out so well. You know, um, shall continue in sin that grace may abound, God forbid. Um, the whole point of, of God's forgiving us and restoring us is so that we are then able to live lives that please him. So it's not just a blank check. 
He calls us to live righteous lives. <clears throat> and then secondly, just on the point of how Jesus, how quick Jesus is to forgive, and this is something that I kind of get hung up on a while, and sometimes I think we have the idea of, you know, I, I know, I know I'm really struggling with this big thing that's really holding me back. Uh, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, a sin issue. Maybe it's just a situation where you know you failed in. It's, okay, I know I have this situation that's really holding me back, that I know it's really cutting off my relationship with God. I know I really need to deal with it. But before I deal with it, um, I know I've kind of had the thought, okay, maybe I need, to have, I need to have a time where I'm having victory, and then I'll go back to God and he'll forgive me, and then I'll keep living my Christian life. Or I need to have a time where I really, really feel bad for, about it, and then I'll go to God and he'll forgive me and I can go on with my Christian life. But just looking at this passage, it's just amazing how quick Jesus was to forgive. It was, it was literally that fast. He says, where's your cute? Where, who condemned me? Nobody. All right? Neither do I forgive. Neither do I condemn thee. And that quickly, Jesus forgave the woman. And again, this, this, this was a big deal. Jesus wasn't saying it's not a big deal. It was a big deal. According to his laws, a big deal. But he was that quick to forgive this woman. And in our own lives, that's how quick Jesus is to forgive us when we, when we seek that forgiveness. It's that, it's that quick. We don't, we don't need a period of, okay, I just need to feel really bad about this for a long time, then he'll forgive me. Or I need, I, need, I need to prove to God that I'm going to be a good person and that I can live in victory, and then he'll forgive me. No, Jesus is, is that quick to forgive. And really, until we seek that forgiveness and get that restored relationship with God, I don't think we really can really feel repentance or we definitely can't live holy lives. I mean, if, if we try to, if we know we have a sin problem and we try to live a life that's pleasing God, we're just not going to be able to do it. And until we get that forgiveness, that's when Jesus' power is going to come back in, in, in a real way and we'll be able to to live out what he says there, go and sin no more. Um, so Jesus forgives completely and instantaneously, and then he calls for renewed holy living, go and sin no more. So I, I hope that was helpful. So again, just to review, um, just the, the four points I kind of got out when I was reading down through this passage. So we're all guilty. We all have issues and thus have no right to judge others until we have the right view of ourselves and what the situation is and if we're judging others for the purpose of restoring them because that's what Jesus did. Jesus had every right to condemn, but he seeks to restore. Thus, Jesus is quick to forgive, but he is also quick to call to righteousness. So just in, some, in conclusion, um, just had some questions I was asking myself as I got through studying this. And first one, do we, do we really understand the forgiveness of God? Or are we letting a failure in our life destroy us and holding us back from the full relationship God has to offer? And this was something um, I ran across a lot when I was at college. I experienced some in my own life. And then a lot of other people I talked to really struggled with this, where they, they felt like there's this failure in their life that was just, that was, they just could not get over this failure, and this failure was just holding them back, and they felt like they just couldn't do anything for God because of this failure. When really God, God, God just wants us to, to recognize the sin problem and ask forgiveness, and he's willing to forgive us that fast and to restore that relationship. Um, so just, just accept the forgiveness that God has for us, and it's that simple. Are we viewing God's forgiveness as a blank check for self-serving 
or sinful living. Um, Jesus clearly calls for us to accept forgiveness and then to go and sin no more. And again, Romans 6 um, is a great argument and logical explanation for why this thinking is so twisted. And then lastly, are we quick to judge others and slow to help them resolve their issues um, with a humble spirit? And I know that's something that really struck me as I was, as I was um, studying this out because I know I'm, I'm really quick to judge people and a lot of different things. And again, that's not necessarily a wrong thing, but I, I know I'm not quick to help them out um, with whatever situation it is because, again, that, that takes humility. And um, sometimes, it takes, sometimes it takes getting a little messy. And, you know, having, having relationships with people and uh, helping out people, it can, it can be a little messy sometimes. But, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of you know this a lot more than I do. I'm just having more experience. But there's, there's, there's a special kind of joy um, that, that's built into to working with people and, and helping people and getting messy with people, but then, then seeing people really come out the other side and, and being able to be a help to them by the grace of God. And, and pointing them to God and, and really seeing them come through. There's, there's a special kind of joy that definitely compensates, you know, the messiness of our relationships with people. Um, so are we, are we quick to judge and slow to help? Because, honestly, I think, I think God calls us to do both. He doesn't call us to bury our head in the sands about, about situations people are in. So I hope, I hope that's a help tonight. Um, just some observations I had about this story and the way Jesus handled um, this particular situation. And um, I know as I, was reading, as I was looking at this that God gave me the application I need to make for my life um, to make me more like him, and I hope maybe he's, he's spoken to you and some areas um, as well. So thank you for your attention, and I'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer here.